Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. And today I have with me Dina Bibb of Proper Pepper, and she produces pimento cheese. How are you doing today, Dina? Hey, Justin. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Happy to be on the show with you. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time, or you taking the time to be on the show and talk to us and tell us your story, because I think... You know, we've seen you in the past. I've seen you at the Flavor of Georgia, and we've, you know, talked about um, some opportunities together. But your product is phenomenal. And I just want the audience to know that the first time Deborah ever ate your product, I wasn't allowed to touch any of it, and she ate all of it in in one sitting. (laughs) So uh, it it is that good. And I know a a lot of the audience out there doesn't know what pimento cheese is because it is a very Southern thing. So could you tell us a little bit about pimento cheese before we get into your story? Sure, sure. Pimento cheese is definitely a regional food. Um, Similar to Thanksgiving dressing, I usually tell people that every family growing up in the South Uh, their mother or grandmother had a special recipe for pimento cheese. And most of those recipes are so different. Some people use a mayonnaise-based pimento cheese. Some people use a cream cheese base. Uh, Some people put onions. Some people put paprika. But the ingredients that are most common would be a, a sharp cheddar cheese, mixed with a little bit of mayonnaise, and mixed with pimentos. Um, And I actually use roasted red peppers instead of pimentos because I think that they taste much better, and I can explain that a little more later. But it's just a mixture of cheese and mayonnaise and pimentos and whatever other ingredients you want to add to flavor your pimento cheese. So... um, it, it is definitely associated with the South, and it's been around, I think, since the 30s and 40s. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's, that's part of what it is. It's just, but it's such a staple. I'm like, I'm surprised more people don't enjoy it. And actually, here in Colorado, we're starting to see a little bit of pimento cheese uh, make its way into the supermarkets out here. Um, it's definitely yes. not as good as yours, but it they, they but, do have it out here, and... It's interesting. I think it is starting to get uh, a national uh, footprint. And I believe, you know, if I were to predict that over the next 10 years, we're going to start seeing it seep into an international market just because, I mean, it is flavorful and the creativity of of people using the product um, to put on burgers or make sandwiches like um, that's traditional is really starting to gain hold, right. you know, put it on, uh, you know, fried green tomatoes and things like that. So right. I think that's so awesome um, that it is a product that's gaining momentum. And it's one of those things that I just want to tell the audience that there are a lot of things in the Southeast United States that are staples of Southeast United States culture and food and things like that, that are really good, that are starting to make their way into the world. And so I really think what you're doing is amazing, and I know that your product's going to gain growth, especially because it tastes so good, but also because the marketing and the name and the things that you do. So, um, Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you, Justin. Well, I was speaking to a friend from Canada recently, and she was trying to figure out how to get pimento cheese into Canada. And, of course, 
I don't think very many Canadians have heard of pimento cheese, but she referenced it. <laughs> she referenced it as the next um, spinach dip, and I got so tickled. And I said, "What are you talking about?" And she said, "You know, when you mix spinach with sour cream and um, you dip potato chips in it, which is something that you know we did as children." And I, I don't know when I've had that dip, but she, apparently that hit. Canada uh, at some point in time in recent years, and she thinks that pimento cheese can be the next great dip in Canada. So I understand what you're saying, and for someone being in the business, that's exciting to hear that it is trending in states that um, it's not necessarily readily available. Yeah, and uh, just the flavor profile and the texture, I just it's an amazing product, and I like I love it on a burger. So it's one of the things I definitely do when I'm there. But I also like it with a cracker, or I'll eat it by the spoonful. But uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, or on a piece of bread, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's pretty versatile product, and you can really get creative with it. I think the pimento uh, fried green tomato sandwich for me with a pimento cheese on it and, you know, a toasted bread is pretty incredible. And even just a regular tomato and the pimento cheese on a sandwich, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah. And there's so many ways and creative ways people are, are using it. You know, I've seen people use it as a topping to steak and um, and chicken and on dishes. So, I really think the product itself is going to grow um, a lot. And again, before you get in the story, I just want to mention the audience. They can find you on Instagram at Proper Pepper um, and Correct. on Facebook at Proper Pepper as well. And that you're located out of Sandersville, Georgia. And so That's they right. know where to get it. But they can also find you online at properpepper.com. So if they want to look at the product and see what we're talking about, they can find you on there. Um, and again, before we get into your story, what is, I know you have two kinds of uh, pimento cheese. Will you tell us a little bit about those? Yes, yes. Well, I, this recipe was shared with me about 24 years ago, and it was the recipe that I call the classic in, in my branding. And this is just a traditional, rich, creamy pimento cheese that... Um, it, most people say reminds them of how their grandmother made it. Uh, I made that pimento cheese for probably 15 or 20 years and really never toyed around with the recipe until I entered the Flavor of Georgia contest in 2015 and had some intentions of going into the market to sell my pimento cheese. And I learned pretty quickly from people in the business that you really should have more than one flavor of, of any food product that you're trying to market. So the night before the contest, my husband and I decided that we would try to come up with a spicy version for proper pepper. And we uh, grabbed a pepper jack cheese and mixed that with a cheddar and then added some jalapenos to it. And we came up with a spicy version and we call it Get Back Jack. It has pepper jack cheese, and it just makes you step back and say, wow, what a wonderful flavor explosion. So, and ironically, that one won the Flavor of, Conte flavor of Georgia contest. Um, so that's kind of our flagship product after having made the classic for 15 years. <clears throat> so we have two flavors, classic and get back jack. I love the name of the get back jack, and I, I'm – Definitely love the spicy flavor as a person that likes spicy foods. But 
either or for me work. I, I could eat both of them in one sitting. And, and Deborah and I, as mentioned before, <laughs> we each have to get our own uh, little container of it because um, neither one of us are willing to share it. So there is that. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll often do halvesies where we'll get one of each and then split it in half and then and then share the other half because it's hard to choose oh. one or the other. For I mean, seriously. Thanks, and Justin. You're very welcome. So tell us a little bit about your journey to how you created Proper Pepper and how you um, decided that you were going to become a food entrepreneur. Okay. All right. I'd love to share my story. Well, about 24 years ago, as I mentioned, I moved to Waycross, Georgia back in 1995. And that was just a total different life than I have now. I did not have children and was working in the healthcare industry, actually in, in marketing and public relations. And I had always been a fairly good cook and I enjoyed the kitchen, but I had no intentions of starting a food business. We had a neighbor that brought a Christmas gift to us soon after we moved into our home there in Waycross. And her gift was a little jar of pimento cheese with some crackers. And it was the best pimento cheese I had ever tasted. And I really didn't have a lot to compare it to. My mother never made pimento cheese when I was growing up. We always bought whatever was at the grocery store, even though she, too, was a wonderful cook. And we lived on a farm and, and, and gardened and had fresh protein and vegetables year-round. But pimento cheese was not her thing. So when I tasted of this pimento cheese, it really made an impression on me. And... My friend's name was Frankie Royer, and she was a retired school teacher. And every Christmas, she made several batches of pimento cheese and would put them in cute little mason jars and give them to all of her friends for Christmas. And so I asked her for that recipe, and she shared it. And so I started making pimento cheese for my family and for my friends in Waycross. And um, I changed it up a little bit. She used a different type of cheese than I do and I think she used pimentos and I used roasted red peppers but nevertheless the the base of the recipe is is hers and I shared that recipe for the 12 years I lived in Waycross and then when I moved to Sandersville I had an entirely new audience to share it with and people would ask me to make it to go to ball games for tailgating for reunions for beach trips, for church homecomings. And I just kind of became known as the pimento cheese lady. And people that I didn't even know would learn about my pimento cheese. And so I, unbeknownst to my husband, I decided that maybe I should look into possibly marketing my pimento cheese. And I took a year of very secretive research without him knowing and studied every pimento cheese on the market. I bought every one I could find either online or when we were visiting grocery stores. I figured out where these companies were located, where their pimento cheese was made, what stores they were in. And um, I had my own taste testing with all of those brands one day um, with a bunch of friends. And I created a spreadsheet with all of that information and I presented it to my husband who is a banker and asked him if he 
thought that I would have an opportunity in the cheese market, even if I wanted to just make it and sell it at the local farmer's market. And I was a little nervous about approaching him because at that time I was 49 and we had four-year-old twin girls and we also had a daughter that was in high school and I loved being a mother and had waited a long time to become a mother, but there was something in me that was churning that, that needed a creative outlet. And I also thought if I could just make pimento cheese and sell it just in my local town or the surrounding area, then I could teach my girls how to interact with the public and make change and how to start a little business. Um, so when I presented it to Ken, he really embraced the idea and he said, I would love for you to explore this and, um, you know, do, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, I have found a workshop at the University of Georgia um, entitled How to Start a Small Food Business. And I registered for the workshop and came home from that workshop really fired up but also somewhat intimidated because the notebook about foodborne pathogens really scared me. And I also learned that I couldn't just make this pimento cheese in my home and sell it, that you know, I had to have a certified kitchen. I didn't even know what that word meant. I didn't know who would, you know, who would regulate that. I knew nothing about the food business. I just knew that everyone liked my pimento cheese. And when I presented it at this workshop in Athens and did a taste testing with all of the other people that were in the class, I received a lot of encouragement. So I came home and spent another year working towards launching a business, developing a website, developing the name, developing the logo, starting to figure out uh, a business plan. And as I was approaching my 50th birthday in January of 2015, I decided kind of on a whim to enter the Flavor of Georgia contest, which I didn't even know about until I went to that workshop. And I entered it with two flavors and won the dairy division with the Get Back Jack, which, as I said, was not the flavor I had made for many years, but one that we developed just a, a day or two before the contest. And winning that contest for me was affirmation that someone other than my friends and family liked the pimento cheese, but more so when the judges of the contest came to me after the event and talked to me about how delicious my pimento cheese was and what potential that they thought it had in the market, that's when I kind of had that chill bump moment that, okay, this is truly a possibility here, um, especially someone like in the food distribution business who services 4,000 grocery stores and says, I think I can sell this in my grocery stores. I just, I, I mean, I never felt, I don't know, I didn't feel like I was worthy of being in the food business because I knew nothing about it and no one in my family had ever done anything like this before. I just, I just didn't have the confidence that I needed. But the contest gave me the confidence. And before I left, Cindy Dickey, who owns a peach farm in Musella, Georgia, she said, we open our peach stands in the summer and welcome other Georgia-grown businesses. I would love to sell your pimento cheese. 
And I just started crying because someone already was a customer before I even left the contest. So that's how this business got started, from a recipe from a friend, making it for 20 years, deciding as a young mother that I wanted to use my gifts in sales and marketing in a creative way and trying to decide, well, what is it that I do that's really, really good that maybe someone would buy? And it's pimento cheese. (laughs) So that's my story. So as a sales and and marketing professional before, how did you come up with the name and, and the logo and the design of your packaging and everything? Oh, I love to tell that story. Well, I, I love Pinterest. And so that year that I took in trying to develop my business plan, I would go to Pinterest every night after the girls um, were put to bed and I created Pinterest boards. I would just type in small batch food or small batch food logo in the search bar. And every time I saw something that spoke to me, I would file it away. And whether it was the coloring or if it was certain elements of the logo, I knew the look that I wanted, but I didn't know how to articulate that look. I just knew that I didn't want to look like the other pimento cheeses on the market, which most of them use neon green for their spicy colors, and they use neon orange for their classic colors. And they were in round tubs. And and although the products are good, they had a more, I guess, more of a country or Cracker Barrel look. And I wanted to, I wanted my packaging to look more sophisticated. And I would envision in my head, like my packaging sitting in like a Dean and DeLuca cooler or something. I mean, that was before I even knew a lot of names of specialty grocery stores, but I had been to a Dean and DeLuca and I thought, oh, wow, you know, I just want one of everything in that whole place. And if I could envision my product sitting in their cooler, what did it need to look like? And I knew it didn't need to look like the other pimento cheeses that I had purchased along the way to study. So I created this Pinterest board and then I um, wanted to come up with a name and I wanted something that would represent kind of my lifestyle and who I, just kind of who I am. And even though I grew up on a farm and I'm a real simple, frugal person, I love a lifestyle that is a little more proper, if you will. Like I I love, or maybe more Southern. and, and, And many times a Southern woman is associated with being proper, um, and I can't really explain where the word proper came from until I get to a point where a group of friends and I were coming home from my 50th birthday getaway, and I announced to them that I wanted to enter my pimento cheese into this contest, and they were blown away because, remember, for a couple of years, this was all a big secret. And I had listed a bunch of names for my product. And when I got to proper pepper pimento cheese, they all screamed and said, that's it. That's it. It's just, it just represents who you are. And I, I, you know, they're like, you're the epitome of being Southern. You, um, 
you know, you have the sweet little family and you're trying to teach your girls to be, um, you know, manners are very important in our family. And um, I don't know, they just, they kind of pick the name. And I love alliterations. And I've noticed since picking the name that there are a lot of alliterations in the food business when it comes to names of foods. And it just flows well. And I also love crowns. And I learned to love a crown as a new parent who read a lot of Christian blogs about parenting. And one of the blogs that I read suggested that when you have little girls and they start understanding what a princess is, that you teach them that putting on a crown and being a princess is not about being a Disney princess. It's about wearing a crown and being a daughter of the king, the king, Jesus Christ, the king. And so that really struck a chord with me and my faith and my parenting style. So I just kind of thought, okay, a crown is going to be on my packaging. A crown represents the word proper. And it's kind of a subtle way for me to be able to share my faith in this journey when people ask, well, where did you come up with proper pepper and why do you have a crown on your packaging? So I'm so glad you asked, Justin, because it's, it's just a little opportunity to share really where all of my energy and all of my talents and blessings come from. I love the crown thing. I had, I actually had no idea, but I love the attachment to to Christianity and the representation of a princess and and um and the king for sure. I'm just like that yeah. really blew me away. It actually made me silent for a second. I'm like that really hit me hard and I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's really amazing. And I I actually really love that that you know, a lot of people try to build brands that are, you know, trying to sell it to the public, but you built a brand that was true to you and a logo that was true to you. And I do think it really shows in there, especially now that I've heard the story and anyone in the audience, you really need to look at the logo and the branding and the packaging that's done. Um, because you've also put it in a squarish container um, versus a rounded container, which to me, the whole presentation of it does look more sophisticated and it does really back up the flavor of, of your pimento cheeses and what's done there. And the coloring, I, I and again, I did notice that it wasn't typical of just slapping a label on it and, and following the traditional colors that are usually on pimento cheese packaging. And so I think it right. really sticks out. And f for me... You know, people do sometimes buy just off the shelf if they don't know what kind of pimento cheese they want or what kind of product they want. But it really speaks to people in the way it's presented and in the container and the way that it looks and in your logo. So that's why I really asked because I'm just I've been fascinated for a long time ever since I saw it in 2015 at the Flavor of Georgia uh, contest or yeah. I think it was 2016. Um, where we actually judge, I think it was entered, and, but maybe not. I can't. It's hard because I've done so many. Um, and I right. Leave well, we eating. were in the contest. <clears throat> we were in the contest in 2015, but I think I met you in 16 when we were chatting about some of your business plans, and we shared samples with you. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. And yeah, and the coloring. I, when when I, I I skipped part of my story, I, I took 
that Pinterest board and I sought out an agency that was actually a member of the Georgia Grown program at the time. And with a marketing and PR background, I felt like I had a pretty sharp eye for what looked good. And um, I was able to share that Pinterest board with the agency. And I just told them, I said, I want this to look sophisticated. But I also, you know, pimento cheese is such a vintage food. It's been around for so long. So I want a fresh vintage look that is sophisticated. And after just maybe three rounds, they nailed it. Um, the name of that company, by the way, is Clark Creative. And it's in Savannah, Georgia. Carrie Clark is the owner. And they also built our website using that uh, fresh vintage look and all the colors of our packaging. So um, we get more compliments on that packaging even before people taste the food. And I, I really believe people eat with their eyes. I know I do. I buy shampoo and wine just based on the pretty labels. Yeah. <laughs> so um, hopefully that uh, people will also buy my pimento cheese if they're not familiar with it by, by noticing the beautiful label. And then, of course, hopefully we'll get hooked from the flavor. Now, just out of curiosity, um, are there any plans for additional flavors or you're just trying to stick with what you have um, and then go from there? Or is the, the idea to, to continue to, to build the line of offerings or you're having such success with the two, you're sort of sticking with that for now? Well, for now, I'm sticking with these two, mostly because we have so many other challenges in the business that I'm sure we'll get to later in the podcast. I don't feel like I could really launch another flavor, but oh yes, I have probably at least three um, new flavors that we would like to launch at some point in time. And I did a fun Facebook, and I don't even think I was on Instagram when I did this, but early on in the business as I was launching it, and I love hearing people's stories about my grandmother made pimento cheese, and she put green onions in hers, or my mother made pimento cheese, and she would always put just a little bit of garlic. And so I started learning all of the different ways that people have enjoyed pimento cheese. And of course, by tasting other brands, I've also discovered some flavors that I've enjoyed, like putting bacon in pimento cheese or putting a walnut or pecans in pimento cheese. Or um, let's see, what are some others? Um, olives in pimento cheese. So it's, it's, again, it's like Thanksgiving dressing. You can just kind of Mix whatever you want to your palate. Um, and so we hope one day that we can expand our product line. And not just in pimento cheese, but some other chilled spreads and even some products that may complement our product, like a pepper jelly or a cracker. And so you can kind of buy a product line um, for a proper picnic, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's a, actually, that's a good one right there. You should hold on to that proper picnic. <laughs> because <laughs> I can already see it in my head. Um, and, uh, it's sort of a, a preppy, nice picnic and people v very well put together. Um, I do have some other questions going down that line, but I wanted to go on a little bit of a tangent because you mentioned growing up on a farm. And I think, you know, as a person that grows up on a farm, you learn a little bit of a different work ethic. So can you tell the audience what kind of farm you grew up and tell us a little bit about your childhood? Because I think it's, it's formed you as a human being for sure. And, um, and, and your success that you're having. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. Well, I am the 
youngest of five children. I have a sister that is 16 years older than me, and we have three brothers in between us. And both of my parents grew up in Wrightsville, Georgia, as did our entire family. And that is just about 18 miles south of where I live now in Sandersville. My mother owned a department store most of my life. And my daddy was a farmer. He grew up, ironically, uh, dairy farming with, with his father. But uh, later, as an adult, he we had a farm. It was about 320 acres. And we grew corn and cotton and soybeans and, of course, a huge garden that fed the entire community where we lived. And we had livestock on the farm. And my daddy was also in law enforcement. He was a deputy sheriff for many years and then was a sheriff for a couple of terms before he retired. So when I say I grew up on a farm, like, I really did have to help, you know, round up cows when they broke through the fence or I drove a combine as a teenager and I, you know, helped daddy take plows off and on equipment when it was broken. So I really um, grew up on a true working farm. And we were poor, but I never knew that because we were in a community that, um, was much like we were, just common people with average means and incomes and education. And so it wasn't until I grew up and went to college that I realized just how poor we were. But I wouldn't take anything for that experience because the worth, the work ethic of my parents, um, I think it's just in my DNA. And my husband says when we married the first month or so that we were um, you know, working on our home and working in our yard that I really outworked him out in the garden <laughs> and he had never seen um, a woman work so hard, you know, digging up roots and trying to get a garden ready. And so I made a great impression on him and he's always shared that story. But I'm proud of that heritage. And my mother's still living. She's 87. She actually comes to visit me in Sandersville and sometimes I load up her car with pimento cheese and she takes it to the Piggly Wiggly in Wrightsville, and it's just the cutest thing. She'll go into the customer service desk and tell them she has a trunk load of pimento cheese and coolers, and they go out and get it and put it on the shelf for her. So um, it's, it's very sweet. It's great that she gets to see that and be a part of it, but also be proud of you, I'm sure, for what you've accomplished uh, through it. She, she is. She is. And I'll tell you a little more to that story. Um, my my daddy died in, um, in the 90s, and so he, of course, uh, was not a part of this. But my mother, um, she had some timber cut on our farm, unbeknownst to me. I didn't even know she was having it done. And one day she showed up here in Sandersville, and she looked a little shaky and rattled, like I couldn't really figure out what was wrong. It was like she was about to announce to me that something was wrong and it was just at the same week that I had won the Flavor of Georgia contest and was getting ready to take 
my business to market. And she started crying and she put an envelope in my hands. And I said, Mama, what is wrong? And she said, I have had some timber cut and it is my pleasure to give each of my children $10,000 from this timber because I have never, ever been able to give you all such um, gifts as this. And she started crying, and I started crying, and little did she know that I had an invoice for $5,000 on my desk for the website that had just been built, and then uh, another couple of thousand dollars for some other graphics design work. So I said, well, Mama, I... You know, seven of this 10,000 is about to be used, and let me tell you why. And we just had a big crying party. And <laughs> it's just incredible that that money landed in my hands the very week that I was launching a business, and she had no idea. So I love that um, story. <laughs> and I think it's interesting, and I'm, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but um, one of the things, and I you know, I have stepchildren, I don't have children on my own, but one of the things Deborah always says is how when children are born, they kind of bring money or a way to survive and, um, and, and make ends meet. But I also think that as an entrepreneur, what I found when you really have a concept and you're authentic in the concept and, um, life has this weird way or, and God, um, I believe in that, uh, has a way of, making it work for you when you are true and authentic in what you're offering and like you have done and we just discussed. So I think that's really important and, and an amazing story because when you needed it, it came to you. Um, and it wasn't a, uh, something that was an explosive amount of, you know, income coming in, but enough for you to get by and continue your journey and give you the blessing right. to continue to learn. And, you know, right. it still be at somewhat of a disadvantage of, building a new company, but at an advantage to get through that particular part, but also all the disadvantages that come as an entrepreneur to learn from, to better yourself and better your business. Those are, you know, huge right. lessons. Another part I want a little bit talk about is growing up on a farm myself and growing up in an entrepreneurial family also. And we talk about it a lot on this podcast is how those experiences and work ethic really translate in kids that grow up with entrepreneurial parents. Um, I, you know, from my experience, there's a different work ethic. There's a different understanding of the way the family unit works, um, a closeness and a bond. I mean, for me growing up on a horse farm, you know, if we didn't all work together as a family, um, you know, we didn't get to do the things we wanted to number one, but number two is an animal would literally die. So, you had to get things done and you had to be a part of it and you had to make sure the family business succeeded. And so, you know, anyone out there that's, you know, considering bringing their children into a family business and, and not sure they want it, I think there is a huge lesson, especially as they're younger, to be a part of it and see what's going on. I know for me, it was hugely beneficial. And we hear a lot of it on this podcast. A lot of people grew up you know, with a work ethic or a uh, entrepreneurial background or a, a, a definite stronger work ethic. Because being an entrepreneur, um, we've heard, we hear it on one of the podcasts is, you know, we're willing to work 80 hours instead of 40 hours because we want to work for ourselves, but we don't even know we're working 80 hours because we're already used to working that time as we grew up. 
And I think that's kind of an important point um, is we have more tolerance for hard work and um, we have more tolerance for completing a task without, you know, sort of kicking the can down the street for lack of a better term that, you know, anyone who's out there who wants to be entrepreneur, it really, it's the, the thing that I see consistent across the line as we're discussing is the consistency in completing a project all the way to the end and right. uh, an understanding right. of that. So, well, I'll tell you, Justin, I think that we also that cannot always work in our favor because I have uh, I struggle with downtime and the sense of being of feeling lazy if I'm not busy. And it's only during this pimento cheese um journey that I've had to really force myself to realize that my value does not come from how busy I am. And I really used to, I I, I didn't really, I don't know, I felt like if I was not busy, I was not worthy. And that is not a real healthy way. Although, (laughs) you know, you get a lot of things done and you, you know, you, you, you have a work ethic that can help you to be successful, but you have to take that time for yourself and for your family and for my husband and just those quiet moments to even be reminded of all the blessings. So um, although I'm very proud of that work ethic, I have to work towards allowing myself some down time and and feeling like that's okay (laughs) i actually love that you said that because um i don't want and i don't want to confuse the point because it is important that we do have time with the family and downtime and time for ourselves but it's also been something recently deborah and i have been discussing as entrepreneurs and as growing a business is you know oftentimes Busy work doesn't necessarily reap success in in our personal lives or reap success because we can get so myoptic, for lack of a better term, uh, about things that we, you know, often don't spend enough time taking care of ourselves or spending the time we need to with our families. So finding a balance there for sure. Um, I'm glad you said that because it is important. Uh, And for me... Um, I agree with that. It's hard sometimes to pull myself away from things and uh, busy work. And, you know, for me, if I get too busy or I try to take on too much, I almost get frantic. And so there is a balance there. Um, and now that yeah. I don't live on a farm per se, um, I did struggle with trying to figure out what to do with my time and my energy. And if, um, you know, I could look like I was, you know, hyperactive probably because I was so used to burning that energy in sports and in, on the farm. It took me a while to figure out how to harness it and how to right. use it properly and then also be able to somewhat tame it so I could have the memories and the moments with my family um, and, and slow down just a little bit and realize taking one day at a time and enjoying the moments we have and you never know what tomorrow will bring type thing um, and really That's just right. slowing down because I would much rather have a moment with my family than, than a moment at work, although I love working and I love business and being an entrepreneur, but it still doesn't replace that time. 
you know, so finding a balance between that, I think is, is great. So on that note, how do you find a balance amongst it with, with your, your girls and your husband? And, and do you set aside a certain amount of time per day or is, how do you regulate yourself in order to make sure that you stay true to yourself in that way? Well, I'm not so sure I do that very, very well. It just, it seems as if, and I guess it's like this in every business, you have a week that is just so tough. You don't even know what day of the week it is. And you go to bed worrying about the next day. And don't problems always seem the worst at night? Like when you're trying to sleep, it just seems like you are not going to be able to accomplish whatever it is the next day. But when you do get up the next day, somehow you get it done. And then I'll have a week or two where you just coast. Um, I don't feel like I do a good job with planning. I feel like I'm more reactive than proactive. But for some reason, that is a reflection of just who I am. I think I've always been that way, even with college and with other jobs. I don't feel my energy and creativity coming on until there's a slight bit of pressure. And um, I work much more spontaneously than I do planning. So I'm not sure I would recommend that, but um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm not sure if I do a great job balancing I do make a special effort to have our family eat a meal in the evening at home as many days a week as possible. And I read about how that's important, and I believe it. And that is when our girls open up to us, and we get on all kinds of tangents of conversations that we never take the time during the day to do. Um, so that evening meal is very important to me. And as many times as possible, I do not spend the night when I'm traveling, even if I get home very late at night. I just like being in my bed. I like waking up the next morning to my family. So I kind of push myself um, to get back home. Um, I, I, I really, I, I'm sorry I'm not able to answer this question very well, but no, I think you're answering it perfectly and, and true to you. So, and I, I'll, I'll help you out a little bit. And I think what the most important thing is, is that, you know, just by making sure you're home and just by making sure that you have the time together with your family every night, it is, um, and I can relate to it because it's something my family did growing up. Um, and my dad did travel quite a bit, um, on the road and, but having that time, whether he was there or not, uh, where we sat down and ate together, and then when he was there, making sure that we were all together and we spent time at the table and none of us really got up until everyone was done and, and we conversated or had conversation. Yeah. I don't know if conversated is a word. I just kind of made it up. But conversation <laughs> on the, on the uh, you know, about each other and about what's going on and the tasks at hand. I, You know, something like that I think is... Um, pretty amazing. Um, and a lot of families, you know, um, at least in my experience with my stepdaughters and hearing their stories is that people don't sit down and eat together anymore. They sit down in front of a TV or sort of eat as they go. The food's on the counter. And I think right. that's hugely important. So I just wanted to give you a compliment for that. I think it's important. Um, well, thank you. And, uh, thank you. Well, we also very involved with our church and I'm involved with the girls school and you know, PTO president last year or a couple of years ago and 
working with the youth at our church. So those activities naturally bring me, um, you know, to my children. So I'm involved with their activities. And my husband is, is really Superman. I mean, he, he knows how to make a mean ponytail in their hair and he doesn't mind jumping in and helping with dishes. And he cooks a lot of our meals, especially when I'm traveling and, um, so it, it really takes a team here, um, and he too, you know, just just trying to put our children first and our marriage second and this business third. Um, I'm not sure if that's what we should be doing, but I think anyone with young children, it, it, unfortunately, the children usually come before the marriage. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it gives uh, your husband an opportunity um, just because you are uh, running your own business t- for him to be really a part of the the girls' lives for sure. And it helps, uh, in my opinion, anyway. And in my opinion, like him having that time and and sharing it with them and, and making the mean ponytails, like he's giving an example and a model of the men that they should have in their life, or you know, their significant other in their life at some point in. Having a male role model, I think we we've somewhat lacked it in this country. Off on another tangent, but having a real male role model to demonstrate how a woman should be treated and how you know men should treat women, I think is a huge thing. And uh, so, you know, just on a tangent, just okay. having that in your life and being true to yourselves and him, sort of, you know, maybe it's a blessing by God. I don't I don't know, but I think it is is that he gets to be a part of their life and demonstrate all of that to them, which is, is really neat to hear because we we do talk about it some on this podcast and, and the importance of male role models and being um, role models as business entrepreneurs and things like that. So, I mean, you you don't even know you're touching upon it, but as you talk, I just, I think that's awesome. I think it's a amazing thing for sure because, you know, too many people, you know, don't, understand the proper way to and i'll use proper because of proper pepper but the proper way to (laughs) to treat women and there's a lot of women out there that weren't raised in a way where they know how to be treated properly and know what they deserve so um you know that's sort of an off topic but i i think that's awesome so you know do you and your husband for sure that's an amazing thing i know that's what we try to do with uh, my stepdaughters, Deborah's daughters, is, is show them the model of all of it and model of love um, because we want them to be loved and be able to give love in, in the best way possible. And also, and hopefully some of that being good entrepreneurs themselves and, and have something to pass down to them and then have the tools and the skills and the ability to care for people and employees to to take over those businesses if they want to or be involved in right. them. So, um, you know, right, it's all right. one of those you're, you're things. Right. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're talking about family dynamics and all the emotions of a business yeah. really more than we are the nuts and bolts of a business, but it's mighty therapeutic. So thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. And, you know, I think, um, just on a topic, I mean, it's part of the legacy that we have as entrepreneurs is not only our business, but it's our children. And, you know, I don't want to get off on it too far because I want to go back to the nuts and bolts. But it's definitely pretty cool to hear that story. And um, so I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that for sure. So I'll steer us a little bit back onto the topic. Um, 
you know, what are some of the hardships that you're having as a, as a business owner and an entrepreneur and growing your business? Um, if you want to just sort of some of the things that are going on in your life now and some of the things you've experienced since 2015. Well, I will tell you that the biggest hardship that we have had, and this, this by far outweighs any other hardships. Like, you know, we've had product mold, you know, we've had someone call and, you know, say that, you know, we've had all kinds of things happen as anybody does with the food business. But I will tell you that our number one challenge has been trying to scale our business up to a higher volume while also maintaining the crafted quality that it is. Okay. So we would have to have another podcast for me just to share you share with you our co-packing stories. And for those that aren't familiar with that term, I guess if you're in the food business, you know, but if not, a co-packer is someone that will take your recipe and make the product and package it for you, and then you would be responsible for then getting it shipped or distributed to wherever it needs to go. And co-packers often make a lot of different products for a lot of different people. So the challenge for us is that co-packers want very, very large volume. And let's face it, every business is volume driven. You know, the more, the more uh, widgets you buy, the better price you can get. So it's all about volume and price. And so every co-packer that we've approached really wants a very high volume, yet when we go and talk to various grocery stores, they, they want, you know, they, they say, well, you're not penetrating the market quite enough yet and really have a name for yourself. Come back and see us when your volume is higher. So you know where I'm going here? It's like I can't make any more because I'm at capacity. I can't find a co-packer that will take me because my volume isn't high enough and it's hard to grow the business to create more volume because the retailer's telling me I need a little more volume. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's like you go back home and you're like, well, how do I do this? And the way we've done it, for two years now is we just keep accepting more customers and thankfully I have this uh, a couple of ladies that help me in the kitchen that just where there's a will there's a way and we keep adding volume without having a co-packer yet and um, I don't know how much longer we can do this but for right now we we um, we're managing um, we have had trial runs at four different co-packers, and for various reasons, they have not worked out. Uh, the first one did not work out because they wanted to use a meat grinder to shred our cheese rather than a cheese shredder. And, of course, they don't want to invest in a $30,000 cheese 
shredder because we don't have the volume that would warrant that. And we don't want to use pre-shredded cheese in our recipe because it diminishes the quality. So we left that co-packer when the trial run didn't produce the texture that we wanted. And we went to another co-packer who promised us that within six months they would have a cheese shredder. And after six months, they did not. And so we found another co-packer and um, they ended up being in South Florida. And we realized quickly that the transportation cost to get our product back into Georgia, where the majority of our customers were, was not going to be uh, a smart business move. So that didn't work. And the large co-packers that make pimento cheese for all of the products you already see in, in big box grocery stores, you know, they, you have to fit into their wheelhouse. You know, I use Duke's mayonnaise. Well, I can't go in and, and, and if they're not using Duke's mayonnaise and they're already using Hellman's, they pretty much say, well, we'll do it for you, but the cost is going to be higher unless you use Hellman's or unless you use, you know, whatever brand we're using. And we've really tried to stick to our brands. And I think that's part of the reason that we haven't been able to find a co-packer until this past January. We had a co-packer in January and they ran two runs for us and we had issued our third PO. And then they announced to us that they were closing on March 31st. So we went and got all of our raw materials last week and we're back in our kitchen in Sandersville and we're back on the search because we have to have a manufacturing partner to be able to scale and grow this business the way we want to. And we have customers who are saying, call us when you get your manufacturing in place. Call us. Because right now I can't, I couldn't make the volume that a couple of these customers are interested in. So that's the biggest challenge of this business is scaling up and maintaining the quality. Yeah, n uh, number one, I think it's great that the option that you didn't say was that you were going to pack up and, and quit doing what you're doing. Because I know a lot of people, once they get hardships or frustrations with co-packing, co they sort of drop and, and, and go off the radar and, and close their business or whatever. And you found a solution. So number two, how did you find people to, to come in and, and work in the kitchen and, and help you do the co-packaging, right? Or actually do, it's not co-packaging, packaging, uh, yourself right now. And, and how are you managing that and operationally and, and all of that? Well, it's funny story. I mean, this was not all intentional. When I had twins, I think I mentioned I was 45 and my husband was 50 and we had twin girls. And, um, there was a sweet lady that someone introduced me to that came to my home a couple of days a week so I could get out and run errands and um, just kind of have a break from motherhood for a little while. And her name is Annie. And Annie, so she started here helping me in my home. And when I launched the pimento cheese business, I asked Annie if she would come and help me if I made the pimento cheese, would she just, you know, weigh it out and put the product into the cups, put the lid on it, help me get it into the cooler, like just a basic part of a very simple production line. And she did. 
And as my girls grew older and started school, Annie transitioned from helping me at home to helping me in the kitchen full time. And two years ago, my girls went to summer camp for the first time and I went with them and I worked at the camp in lieu of their tuition. And I was gone for two weeks and I, about a month before camp, I really coached Annie on how to make the pimento cheese and she had watched me do it so much, but she didn't have the confidence to do it herself, especially without me being near her. <laughs> and I really just tried to empower Annie with the confidence to be able to make it. And, and when she learned I was going to camp, I just said, we either have to make up a truckload of pimento cheese that'll last for two weeks while I'm gone, or um, you can make it while I'm gone. I think you can do it. And she did. And ever since, she's kind of now been the batch maker, and I've just been the support system. And she brought in her sister to help and talk about an incredible family with a work ethic. I mean, this this family, you know, anything I need, she can find somebody in her family to help me. And she's been one of the most wonderful blessings. And she came out of retirement to do this. So she keeps telling me, I'll be glad when you find a, a coat packer because I'm ready to, <laughs> to slow down a little bit. So it's really just two people that have helped me in the kitchen um, along with, with myself. So it's, it's a very small business, but they can make a bunch of pimento cheese. And I, I think that's great, actually. And you've chosen to go spend time with your kids. So you made a decision to go away for two weeks and and not, you know, as we do as um, entrepreneurs, sometimes micromanage our businesses and processes. And through that and choosing your family, you've empowered uh, someone to do it and and help you when and almost prepare them for an unknown thing that would happen, which is lose a co-packer. And I think that's pretty neat and a pretty neat story right there is in a roundabout way by choosing yourself and your family, you've empowered an employee that now has become essential to the way you do things, especially now with what's about to happen with your co-packer. That's right. That's right. And really, and, and having Annie there making the pimento cheese has allowed me to um, manage a lot of the business at home, I mean, just responding to emails and texts and, you know, fill, completing forms for shows and demos. And it just, it takes a lot of time in front of my computer that I just can't do when I'm in the kitchen making the product. So it really did turn out to be a great, uh, a great partnership to have her in the kitchen and fortunately my kitchen is just one block from my house so she can call and say you know we're we're out of salt or we're out of mayonnaise and I can go help her very easily because it's so close by and I'm in and out so much um, I also do a lot of the delivering and so we you know we see each other three and four days a week um, in the kitchen and with delivering and with production yeah, I think that's um, another thing that being willing to trust someone to, to do something and having trust in your business and trust for other people. And um, 
we talk about this a little bit and, and from my own perspective, you know, needing trust with co-packers and needing trust with vendors and needing trust with employees is a huge part of being a food entrepreneur. And so having that trust is, is really important. But I, on, on the next topic, I want to discuss a little bit, cause now you're talking about concentrating more on sales and marketing and stuff like that. So ha- what kind of shows do you do? You mentioned events and preparing, how do you go out and, and promote your product and, and get people to taste your product? How do you go about that and, and how do you market? Well, as someone with a marketing and public relations background, that all comes pretty natural to me. However, the scope of, of marketing has changed so much since I was in healthcare. Um, when you know, I left healthcare in 2007, and social media didn't really exist. So I've really worked hard to build a social media community. So we have really pull marketing rather than push marketing. You know, we, we and what I mean by that is I, I want Proper Pepper to be a destination item. So people will drive and go out of their way to find it. And I think through social media to be able to generate, um, you know, uh, almost like a lifestyle and recipes and uh, showing people how to use proper pepper. It, that has been probably one of the best ways for me to market the product because people will see it and then ask, you know, if, if it's located near them. And if it's not, I'm able to correspond with them and find out which specialty food store or grocery store is near them to help get the product to wherever they are, if that's possible. So social media has been um, crucial to me marketing my product. The other activities that I participate in really through Georgia Grown, I would say have really catapulted me into places I never would have thought. For example, our new governor in Georgia just uh was inaugurated recently and for his open house at the governor's mansion, the Georgia grown program supplied all of the food and everything there was uh, Georgia grown companies. And so to have my pimento cheese at an event like that with recognition of it just creates an awareness with a whole new group of people. And I wouldn't have that opportunity without, being a part of the Georgia Grown program. And Georgia Grown is the marketing department of our Department of Agriculture. And it's very, very progressive. And they um, have been so supportive and invite all of us Georgia Grown members to every food and wine festival and shrimp festival. I mean, you could spend every weekend out of the year at a festival if you choose to do so, which I kind of got burned out of those after doing so many, but there are opportunities all over the place to market a product. And the best way to market it is to try to get in in people's mouths so they can taste it. So I've definitely been to a lot of festivals, cheese festivals sponsored by Gourmet Foods International in Atlanta. I've done that a couple of times. And um, I also love speaking at events. There is a, a women's, a women's entrepreneur event in Valdosta in the next month or so, and I've been invited to be on a panel of speakers and 
again, you just get to meet such interesting people. And the more you share your story, the more you can grow your brand and build your community, which is exactly why I'm so grateful to be on this podcast. You just never know who's listening. Someone that wants to partner with you, someone that wants to um, put your product in, in their market or, you know, someone who wants to buy your business or what, you know, you just never know. So you certainly can't live under a rock and try to build a business. No, that's for sure. So um, all of that being said, how do you maintain all these relationships? Because I know a lot of people, um, once they start moving in the food business, they meet a lot of people and and maintaining the relationships and, and keeping up with people becomes quite a task. So how do you manage all of that? Well, I have a stack of business cards that I make little notes on when I meet people. For example, I may meet someone at an event that I feel like a personal connection with or that I feel like, you know, is an authentic person that's truly interested in what I'm doing and I'll make a note on that business card and I kind of categorize my business cards, if you will, and like all of the ones that are potential um, proprietors for my product, like somebody that has a market or a grocery store, they kind of go in, in one little stack or in one notebook of business cards. And then people who just seem to have a similar uh, interest and lifestyle as me or who like to do events or who has a brand that's similar to mine that I just think I want to be associated with or I want to collaborate with. I put those cards in a different stack. So that's kind of how I keep my people organized. And I do the kind of the same thing on emails. Like I have different folders in my email systems based on reminding me, is this someone that I want to call whenever I scale up? Or is this someone when I do the next food and wine festival that I want to come and maybe work my booth or that I want to have their product um, paired with my product in my booth. So I, I guess I just, what I'm trying to say, and I've never thought about this question, but I kind of categorize my, my tribe, if you will. <laughs> um, and when I am delivering, like yesterday, I drove to Jacksonville, Florida. So I was on the road for seven hours and I just start, calling people like just people that I've met who have said call me if I can help do this or that and you know if I feel like they're genuine I'll just call them because what else do you have to do when you're driving is I I have great conversations when when I'm in the car alone and so just yesterday I had this wonderful conversation with a girl who used to work with a major brand like they own 29 brands that are in major grocery stores and she was laid off And she has all of this knowledge about merchandising and about promotions and about the other side of the food world. And, you know, this girl is now in my toolkit, in my back pocket, because someone introduced us and we were able to share our stories yesterday. So, you know, you definitely can develop friendships a lot better with conversations and eye-to-eye contact rather than just texts and emails, although I couldn't live without those either. But when you're building relationships, I do think I need to hear a voice 
I need to meet someone. I need to get to know them and try to figure out um, if they have a motive with meeting me and my product or if they are really truly interested in growing together or collaborating together. And I feel like I'm pretty intuitive and I can figure that out pretty quickly. And I, um, we haven't ever discussed it on these, this podcast, but you touched upon something, um, and I actually believe in it as well. It's why I traveled to meet people when I can, because um, there's nothing that replaces that face-to-face interaction with someone and, and really being able to read them and them being able to read you and a lot of trust being built there. And I also agree that a telephone conversation often is better than an email. Um, while email is important and often puts something permanently in writing so you can go back and reference it, I feel that in my experience that nothing can replace a face-to-face relationship as well as a, you know, a telephone conversation. And I, I swear I, I do have employees that do this, that they write emails after emails and it takes so much longer to write an email versus picking up the phone and calling someone. So you know, efficiency wise as an entrepreneur, you know, phone conversations can get so much across so much faster and and so productive. And it's one of those things, like you said, being on the road um, forces you to have those phone conversations because you want to be efficient with your time, but you don't really can't type on a computer or you don't want to send a text for obvious reasons. It forces you to, to have that relationship with someone and that relationship is much more authentic than through a text message or an email, for sure, uh, at least right. in my opinion. That and is right. I've, I've also found that if I can just share my vulnerability or my ignorance, quite frankly, with people that they, they're they more eager to help. Like, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of an example. It's maybe calling up you know, a dairy lab when I was doing shelf life testing and just saying, listen, I don't have a food background. I know nothing about natural or chemical shelf stabilizers. I know nothing about this. What do I need to do? How can you teach me what to put into my pimento cheese to strengthen the shelf life? And how much does it cost for you to do that? And do I need to deliver my product? Like, sometimes I feel like people are a little embarrassed to show their ignorance. And I usually just start off those kinds of conversations by saying, please pardon my ignorance, but I have a lot of questions and I need your help. And something about that just opens the door and people just knock themselves out trying to help you. I mean, they really do. And even, you know, and sometimes those phone conversations make me a little nervous to make. And maybe it's a, a food distributor. Maybe it's trying to get an appointment with Publix. But I, to me, that's just the only way to be. If I go into situations like that acting like I know everything or that I'm really more um, advanced along in the journey than I really am, I'll fall on my face because it's going to show. <laughs> so, um no, I, I agree with that 100%. It's so important that um, that we have real relationships and we're authentic because if we just get to you know what we're asking for and we admit we don't know, people are so much more willing to help us versus coming in and pretending we know it all or we already have all this experience and 
you know, it's one of the reasons I do the podcast because I like I'm such a thirst for knowledge and what people go through and their experiences and and the customers that we deal with and their stories and and their experiences and understanding it and and really learning from it. It's like things that you never know could happen. You learn from and. A person doesn't even know that what they're sharing with you could be educational to you or help you in some way or, you know, some days help you with a bad day just by having a person pick up the phone and call you. It's um, right. It's pretty amazing. And I find a lot of time when if I just get a random phone call, sometimes there are days where I'm like, oh, my God, I, how am I going to deal with this? And how am I going to get through my day? And sometimes just having someone call or that conversation breaks up the day enough to give some you know, more positivity back into my life and, and, uh, right. and do that. So I, I just think it's important, you know, and anyone in the audience that's getting anything from what was just said, I think picking up the phone and calling someone and having that relationship with them, and, you know, whether it's a vendor or a customer or a potential customer, or a potential vendor, the conversation really, you know, could be so much more if you build the relationship and the trust. And those are often more valuable relationships. And, you know, money aside, because price is important, but some of it is when you can trust someone or you can, you rely on them or they're, they're a person of their word and you have that relationship, you know, you're willing to spend a little more to buy something or you're willing to, you know, eat a little more costs on the production side to make sure that that relationship works because you want someone to succeed because you are personally invested and you care about them. And that's not right. saying people should be manipulative in that way. It's more that, you know, as human beings, we are social creatures and we do want to help one another. And, you know, certainly um, as a Christian, I, I do want to give back and I and I do want to help people. So I find my relationships with my vendors and, and my customers that I have so much more beneficial when it is open and honest and vulnerable and we're there to help each other and, and be partners. And it sounds like that's what you're saying. So I, you know, there's so many lessons that have come out of this podcast. I definitely am looking forward, <laughs> forward to actually having another podcast with you because I think we really touch on a lot and your vulnerability and authenticity is so important because you know, the audience needs to know and, and any food entrepreneur or business person out there needs to know that it isn't that easy. And, you know, every one of us that are is out there is going through some of these. So I'm going to have one more question and then um, okay. we'll, we'll sort of wrap it up. But I am going to have you back on the, the podcast for sure. So the audience knows because we have so many more questions and 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 want to hear how your journey goes with co-packing and and your future and what it brings and maybe even hear about some of the new products you may develop. So I really want to keep okay. the audience on the hook on that. So um, <laughs> my question is this, if you could go back right now and we'll ask this question again on the next episode that you're on. So we see if your answer is different, but if you could go back <laughs> and tell yourself something at the beginning of your journey, when you first started proper pepper, what would be some of the things that you tell yourself? Okay. I remember you mentioning to this, this question in an email, and I actually I, I put a lot of thought into this. And it was, again, very therapeutic for me. Um, um, the first thing I would tell myself is just to be patient and allow my product to just grow slowly 
and naturally. And, you know, growth is good, but it doesn't always feel good. Um, It's hard, as you just mentioned. And sometimes I look at other companies and I have a feeling of envy, just maybe how beautiful their social media is or the number of, you know, the depth that they have into the marketplace. And I have to remind myself that I'm just, I'm just still in boot camp with food manufacturing and, and marketing. I, I'm, I'm new and I'm young in this business. So I um, have to remind myself that, you know, it takes years to build a business. Um, I also have to remember that consistency compounds. I love those two words consistency compounds and so I just you know so far I have had um, pretty good success with with how we have grown this business and I just want to continue to be consistent with my relationships with um, the tenacity that it's taken to try to keep the product alive through all of the challenges with the co-packer um, and then I guess the last thing would be, um, probably maybe a little better planning. Like just recently someone said, where do you see yourself in the next six to 12 months? And unfortunately I'd not taken the time I mean, I dream about it in my head all the time, but I had never put that on paper. And when I put that on paper, it was very empowering. And I have been listening to and reading a lot um, of Rachel Hollis's book, Girl, Wash Your Face, and then the new one that came out today, uh, Girl, Stop Apologizing. And listening to her podcast, I can't tell you how uh, inspiring and motivating that been and to um, to to write down those that to do list for the next six to twelve months has been very empowering and I should have been doing that more in all along. So did I answer that question correctly? Because yeah, I'm that was great. <laughs> no, that was great. And just hearing you talking, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but. I find, um, and I recommend this a lot to people that come to me and ask my opinion, is um, the, and Deborah and I are, are working on ours currently, but this, the whole vision board thing is quite an amazing thing, is, is envisioning your life, uh, you know, a few months from now, a few years from now, and decades from now, and where you want to be and what you want to accomplish. I think everyone's vision board is a little bit different, but I definitely you know, recommend looking into that because I think it's therapeutic, number one, and it also helps keep your eyes on your the goals and your end results and the things that you do every day yeah. to get there. Um, so I don't know. That's just my two cents and what it's worth. But it's um, it's sort of something that I've seen a lot of people use and find success in. And I haven't actually found a person yet anywhere that, that has used one that's said that it was a bad thing for them. So uh, I just wanted to throw that out there and for the audience as well. I'm sorry, go ahead. 
No, I, thank you for sharing that. I definitely need to do that. And any resources you have on kind of how to create that and maybe a little template or um, some thought-provoking questions to create it, I would, I would love for you to share that. Yep, I will definitely email you. And on your actual episode, I'll put a link on there for the audience as well so they can see it. But I, I do definitely want to have okay. you on the show again because we still have a lot of questions that we need to go over. So, uh, Dina, thank you for being on the show. I can't tell you how grateful I am and, and thankful because there's we've gotten such depth on, on so many things. And I feel like there's so many things yet to discuss and, and get into. So I appreciate that. I'm definitely looking forward to having you back on. Well, you are welcome. Thank you, Jason, for asking me. And um, I look forward to listening to it. If I can stand the, the sound of my own voice, which is not always fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's one of the things I had to get over when I first started the podcast is hearing myself <laughs> on it. But you get used to it. Um, and anyone that's listening to the podcast and, and, and on here, please, if you like what we're doing and, and you'd like... Um, the stories that are going on. Number one, go to Proper Pepper and try to find some Proper Pepper cheese and try it. I promise you, you will not be disappointed in any way. And make sure you get plenty of vehicles to deliver the cheese to your mouth because you will eat the whole thing. I guarantee it. I, yeah. At least that's my experience. And Well, uh, Jason, I did Go ahead. I'm sorry, Justin, I have to interrupt here. We didn't really even talk about, although my website lists all of my retailers um proper pepper is available in texas at central market and it's all over florida at the abc fine wine and spirit stores and then here in georgia we are just in about maybe 35 to 45 retailers that you can find on my website so um should have plugged that in earlier in the podcast but i wanted to make sure we got that in before we hung up uh, no, and um, I just I'll repeat that, and I want to make sure that uh, just to clarify that on your website properpepper dot com, that the audience can go on there and find the retailers where they can get your product. Yes, yes. And so what? And I want to make sure as we do the next episode, we really get into some of that as well, because I have you know distribution questions and all of that, and things we didn't even cover that I I heard you you touch upon that. I want to make sure on the next episode we talk a lot about those things and, and where people can find your products and stuff like that. But in the meantime, I really recommend anyone in the audience who's who's on to look it up on the website, again, at properpepper.com, and just find some proper pepper pimento cheese. Uh, try to say that five times over again. And... Um, <laughs> and and really try it, and and uh, like I said, it it'll blow your mind and and your taste buds because it's it's that good. And so anyone that's out there, please try it. And um, thank you again for being on. I I can't tell you how appreciative I am, and my gratitude. And the audience, please again share the episodes. You know, tell a friend about what we're doing here, and tell a friend about. Um, Dina's Pimento Cheese and and what she's doing because I think any way we can help good people uh, get their good food out there, it's pretty important. And, uh, you know, she's local to Georgia and the southeast and she's producing a good product. So thank you again. And I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm the host of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's podcast. If anyone has any questions or comments, you're welcome to email me at justin.bizarro at gmail.com. And that's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O at gmail.com. 
Everyone have a great day, and thank you very much.